As the editor of The Garden magazine, one of the things I really enjoy is making the final checks to our monthly issue. It's amazing to see the magazine come together with the effort and creativity from so many inspiring gardeners, writers, photographers and nursery people. It's something that I really love about the job and really never tire of. This month's edition is no different as we're getting a close-up look at some varied and fascinating groups of plants, including pears. When you get one that's succulent and good and juicy and aromatic and you know what to do with them, they really are an astonishing fruit and very much one of my favourites. Asters. I think they are absolutely essential for growing in the autumn. And tulip trees, or liriodendron as we like to say in the RHS. What's really interesting about liriodendron is the foliage. The foliage, it looks a bit like a duck's foot. And so much more in this month's edition of The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young. In this show, I like to talk to the people behind the stories in the RHS's monthly publication for members. So, let's start today's episode with regular contributor, food writer and grower Mark Diacono. You might recognise Mark's name as he's been writing a Tastes to Celebrate series for us. We've heard him, in previous podcasts, discuss the joys of apples, gooseberries, currants, to name but a few. In our October magazine, though, he takes on a delicious treat, pears. So versatile and an amazing addition to any dessert. I got him on the phone to hear how we can make the most of them. Mark, for those with beady eyes and beady ears, if you can get a beady ear, I'm not sure, <laughs> listeners will know you are a regular guest here and, and very much welcome. So, Mark, why pears and why do you love them so? Hi there, Chris. Uh, well, it's lovely to be back. Um, and, and pears, I, yes. Again. <laughs> again, yes, yes, like like the proverbial bad penny. Um, uh, well, we, we can get other guests, but, you know... We've got to give you something to do. We, we do, we actually do. Um, it's been such a pleasure doing the series with you. And, and pears, uh, I think a good pear is as good as any fruit. But, you know, it's not like an apple, which is always going to be pretty good. Pears are a harder thing to love. But like I say, when you get one that's succulent and good and juicy and aromatic and you choose good varieties and you know what to do with them, they really are an astonishing fruit and very much one of my favourites. I've been blessed over the years with a few pear trees in my different gardens. But the one thing, if I'm honest, I've always struggled with is knowing when exactly to pick them. Because I never know whether you have to pick them when they're not ripe enough and then they ripen in the house, or when they're just ripe or when they're just past ripe. What's your advice? Yeah, it's the most confusing thing here. And so the thing that you're looking for here really isn't, generally speaking, to take a pear off the tree and have a munch and it's good. You've got to do a couple of things first, which is to be sure of the variety that you have and then look up online at the RHS website as your good first stop. When is that fruit best picked? And they come in an order of procession. When they're due to be ready, go back to that tree every day, every couple of days, and you should start to notice a few things are going on. One of them is that they should start to kind of swell a little bit they'll be kind of still firm so don't be squeezing them thinking what's going on but you should notice a subtle change of color if you start to see those things start to pick them take them off the tree it may be that there are a few later on that are going to ripen a little bit afterwards but as soon as you see that take them off mid-season ones you might lose a few from the tree that's the time to be picking all of those up and later ones i would say the latest varieties 
let them stay on the tree as long as you can, really until proper frost is coming and then pick them late because the longer the pairs stay on the tree, the better the qualities that are developing. You've got to wait a little bit, a little bit of storage, a little bit of maturing indoors and away we go. When you, assuming that you've picked them at the right time and you're taking them indoors, what do you do with them indoors? Should they be in a darkened room? Should they be wrapped in paper? Can they sit in the fruit bowl with the bananas and the kiwis? So, you know, how do you look after them indoors? Yeah, it's a two-stage thing indoors. So you need that darkened space you're talking about and it needs to be pretty cold. We're looking here really at a garage or a shed or a cellar that's a couple of degrees, fairly steady, no great swings in temperature. Well ventilated, dark is good. And then you've got to store them in a single layer where each fruit is not touching another. That's really important. Good airflow is good. Start with good fruit. Any blemishes and stuff are only going to cause rotting and rotting is going to pass on to neighbours and all of that stuff. And when they're starting to ripen, that's where you start the second stage, which is to then bring them into the house because it may be that the last bit which is the actual softening of the fruit, needs to occur in a war environment, which is your house. And as we've said many a time, your articles aren't just about how to grow these different fruits, but also why we should. In other words, the taste. What do you really love doing with a nice, juicy pear? They're really great to eat fresh. Poaching them is a brilliant thing. Certainly as much as any other fruit. I use pears in salads a lot. I'm very keen on salads that have something leafy, something herby, something proteiny, which might be a bit of ham. It might be a load of halloumi or feta or something like that and something fruity. And pears really cross over a lot because they go so well with a lot of cheese, especially the bluer cheeses, you know, the gorgonzolas and so on. But what about mm. perry? Because ah. what is this? And can you make it from pears? And how do you do it if so? Well, it's very interesting. This Back at Otter Farm, I planted a perry orchard. I'd read that it takes years for them to become productive, but they became productive very quickly. And so perry pears are slightly different to your regular domesticated, delightful pear that you might eat for the pleasure of eating fruit. They tend to be harder, more astringent, and the whole process of making it is very much the same as cider. And it's a wonderful drink. And it's odd because marketing is the thing with perry. Most people I know like perry when they're presented with it. But if you say, oh, that's cider, but made with perry pears, these hard, horrible, stringent things, people will pull a face. But then if you said to my mum, do you want a baby sham, which essentially is perry, she'd be like, oh, thanks very much. Um, so it, it, <laughs> it, 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 We know that about your mother. The reason cider works is that you've got something that's, uh, you know, you've got fruit that's got a whole load of sugar in it that you're allowed to ferment in a, in a relatively controlled way. So you can do this with regular pears as well. And you were talking earlier on about what happens if we've got a whole load of pears here that aren't, you know, they've fallen early or whatever. This is another thing you can do is essentially make pear cider. It won't be perry, but we can ferment it into a nice drink. You can do the same with wine. The chap who used to make the wine and cider for us in, in the old place at Otter Farm, he made an ice wine, which is an extraordinary thing, which is essentially making wine from pears, but then you freeze it, and in the act of freezing just freezes the water, and you take that plug off, and what you've got left is a beverage of high percentage and discombobulation potential um, that's totally delicious and wonderful. So there are indeed all kinds of possibles for making delicious drinks, and let me not ignore the fact that you can just press it for juice, and it's extraordinary. I always enjoy talking to Mark. He's one of those people who wears his knowledge pretty lightly. And, as a not very accomplished cook, if I'm honest, he makes me feel I could get so much more out of the produce we grow at home. 
I'm really pleased with how this series has come together, actually. I hope it's a good balance of how to grow, how to harvest and how to cook with a particular fruit. There'll be further articles in this taste series next year. We've got plenty more in this month's magazine to keep you company. Most people will know the name Anna Pavord. She's an acclaimed author who brings together her plant passion with beautiful prose. Anna has written quite a lot for us over the years, and this month she turns her attention to the subject of seed heads. Those spent flowers or bunches of seed that sustain life and interest in our winter gardens. From Achilles to Agapanthus, Eryngiums to Echinaceas, she challenges us to stop, think again and look at the beauty of seed heads. Another big name is, of course, Roy Lancaster. This month, he revels in a visit to Hergis Croft, the home of Lawrence and Elizabeth Banks. Both of these people are stalwarts of the RHS. He's a former treasurer and she a former president, and they have a huge collection of first-rate woody plants and substantial champion trees. For Roy, it's like being a kid in a sweet shop, and he shares with us some of the most tasty treats he comes across. As well as all of that... We asked a number of experts to take a look at a plant that shines in gardens across the country at this time of year. I'm talking about the aster. One of those experts who contributed to the article is Andrew Ward of Norwell Nurseries, who grows a wide range of these vibrant daisy-like flowers. I think they are absolutely essential for growing in the autumn. So many people get to the end of August and that's it in their gardening calendar. They start to pull out all the bedding, put the garden to bed, as it were, and think about next year. Whereas, in fact, autumn can be one of the best seasons for weather. We often get evenings when you can be out there and you want the colour to continue as long as you can do. And so the asters provide that colour We normally think from the second week of September through to the end of October for the main autumn asters. Though, of course, there are quite a few that will be flowering mid-June onwards. Many of them are in those blue, purple, mauve sort of regions. But they are also soft, bright hard pinks, lipstick pinks, like Alma Pochka, for instance, and then the whites. And I think anything that you can grow that makes the winter as short as possible has to be a good thing. They are excellent all-round plants. Sun, shade in between. The general maintenance and looking after the asters, in the autumn, when they finally finished, we cut them down then. For us on the clay, sometimes we can't get on the soil late on, so we have to wait until perhaps late winter, early spring, because we don't want to destroy the soil structure. So then we would cut them down to about an inch in height. And then think about the dividing up at that time. We're not religious about dividing them up. Some of the books say that you have to do it every two or three years. Ours will tend to get done when I see the clump is getting a little bit congested, 
perhaps dying out in the centre. And sometimes that can be as long as 10, 15 years. And you're not likely to lose a plant just because you haven't divided it up. You're just going to get a dwindling of its vigour in the centre. But then it's a case of lifting it, taking away the centre part, the nice fresh bits round the outside, replant, bit of fresh compost in, and away you go for perhaps another five, ten years before you have to think about doing any more. In an established bed, just like with the other herbaceous perennials or shrubs, round about April time, preferably before rain is forecast, we'll go round and sprinkle some grow more. Most of the asters are strong-stemmed, the Novianglii types. You don't need to provide any extra support to them. Things like monk, which tend to be laxer, just let them go with the flow. They look a little bit like soldiers on display if you try and put a lot of support around things like monk. Just let them weave in between other herbaceous perennials. And perhaps what I should say at the moment is that in the article, it mentions the naming of the asters, and I'm, all, I'm calling them all asters now, which, of course, is the, the old terminology. But now they should be known as symphiotrichums and others like Eurybias. But I think in the garden centres, you're still going to find a majority of people calling them aster. And it's just a general coverall term Everybody will know what you're talking about if you talk about an aster. If I wanted to really shout out about asters and get somebody that had never grown them before to try them out, I would say, come and see some in somebody's garden. See the colours that you can get late on in the year. See the wildlife that it is bringing in. Realise that these aren't prima donnas. They are hard-working, reliable plants that will be with you for year after year after year. And they are easy to put together because they have complementary colours. And you don't have to wait until mid-September for that colour. You can start it off nice and gradually in June and July with the Aster fricatii varieties that will be lower in the border towards the front. And then as you reach through into the autumn, you can get a crescendo. So much so that we like to think that in the second week of September onwards, we'll have as much colour in the garden as we will in mid-June. I think that's something that you've just got to rejoice in. Andrew Ward. There really aren't that many plants like asters for late summer colour, are there? I planted a large border at my parents' garden a few years ago, and I used that good doer, the blue aster cross fricatii monk, and the blue colour, that lovely bluey purpley colour, intermingles with bright red Mexican salvias. It's a really good contrast that my dad loved. It looks great and brings a real wave of much-needed colour in their September and October garden. In all of the RHS gardens, 
visitors are greeted by a number of eye-catching plants, and we often like to feature these in detail with our trademark photographic plates to help gardeners appreciate the differences between the species and cultivars. Tulip trees, or Liriodendron, are a striking group of trees. And this month in the magazine, Peter Jones, one of the garden managers at RHS Garden Wisley, is writing about the garden's national plant collection. He explains how annual coppicing of these plants can produce trees that can also be enjoyed in smaller plots. And they really are remarkable trees, and surely it's their fascinating leaves that are their defining feature. The article includes one of our photographic plates which compares the different leaves together. These large, flat-ended but lobed leaves are something pretty special. Plus, of course, we can celebrate the beautiful tulip-like flowers that seem so special for a tree of this size. I spoke to Peter to find out more about this alluring tree. Alliriodendron, it's in the same family as magnolia, so it has similar style bark. And also when you look at the buds, they emerge and open in the same way that a magnolia does. But what's really interesting about Liriodendron is the foliage. The foliage, it looks a bit like a duck's foot on the straight tulipifera. It has four distinct lobes and it's a lovely, vivid limey green colour, really lovely in the texture. And then the other cool feature is a name, the common name is tulip tree. So they produce these green, yellow tulips. They normally start flowering anywhere after about eight years old onwards. So they take a bit of time to reach a flowering maturity. And they tend to flower really kind of early summer. So going on from May right on to June time, depending on the weather that you get that time of year. Two of our really best uh, mature trees are we've got uh, Liriodendrum tulipifera fastidiata, so the really upright form. We've got two beautiful specimens of these at the top of the rose garden. Um, these are tiring in their height. They're probably getting on for about 12 to 15 metres high and got some real age to them. And they've got that wonderful upright habit. They're very cool. We've got some really nice specimens of the hybrids because there's two main species of tulip tree. There's tulipifera, which is from North America, and then you have chinensis, which is from China. And so the Chinese tulip trees, they tend to have really interesting emerging foliage. They start out with a really pink bronze colour to them when they're just first opening. So if you've got, we have a couple of chinensis on our equinox beds on seven acres. So we coppice those to get the really big foliage. And so as that's all emerging, it's got this most wonderful kind of pinky bronze colour to it. So it's, they're really cool. I mean, they're really good if you wanted to try and use them, say, in more of a tropically planting scheme or say if you've got a courtyard and you wanted some really exuberant foliage. By coppicing, it means that you can keep it in a small space. That's really useful. We started just planting normal trees that you would get from your garden centre. So the thickness of the stem is probably about three centimetres across. And so we plant those in autumn time. And then we left them for about a year, 18 months, just to get a good root system out. And then after they've had that 18 months, we basically took a pruning saw to them and cut them down to 30 centimetres, which is always a bit scary because, you know, you just bought this tree, it's quite an investment, and then you're going to cut it down. One thing that's really important that we all should do when you're especially coppicing 
cultivar is you've got to prune above where the tree's been grafted because all cultivar liridendrums are grafted onto the straight species. So if you want to keep maintain the cultivar's attributes, you've got to make sure you prune above that graft mark. So we do that in round about end of March, early April, and then they start to produce all these uh, new buds. And so they get lots of nice growth. Normally at that point as well, I tend to give the plant a bit of a top dress with general fertilizer, something like chicken manure pellets is as good as anything, and make sure it doesn't dry out during the any kind of dry spell so that the plant's not stressed. And then just keeping an eye on the plant, say when it comes into its second year, when you want to re-prune it again the following year, make sure you're removing any dead and diseased wood. Sometimes you get a bit of dieback where you've got open wounds which haven't healed over. But it's really easy to do and it just means that you can have quite an interesting shrub and then you can control its growth while still having this kind of really interesting foliage. Generally, if you go to a garden centre, you, you're normally just going to come across the straight species, the tulipifera. So that's one that most plant centres will just stop just because they're a bit of an interesting oddity to most people. But I'd say if you want a really good, reliable tree that's going to flower for you, I'd go for a Doc DeForce's Delight. They're just a bit more reliable and you know you will get flowers from a slightly younger age. I think if you wanted a really good variegated one, the Oreo Marginata is particularly good. It's got a really nice, strong variegation, not as light as, say, the Snowbird, which has only just come out. That's been out since 2012. So that's a really good variegated one. I'd go for those. I think they would be some of my favourites and good plants to go for. I think they inspire anyone just because they've got that really fun-shaped leaf and the flower is always a bit like, oh, wow, that's a bit of a surprise when you come up to a tree and you see it covered in these lovely yellowy-orange flowers. Sometimes it's just to push yourself out of your comfort zone. It doesn't feel natural to buy a tree, plant it, and then if you were going to coppice it, then cut it down. That can be real alien and can be, you know, I found it a bit of a challenge myself when I was planting these trees, thinking I've got to cut these down so that they get this coppicing. But once you get them into a rhythm, it's so satisfying knowing that you're going to have this amazing, interesting foliage that everyone's going to wonder, what's that? That's really bizarre. Peter Jones. Next month for the November issue, we look forward to learning more about grasses in the autumn garden with a visit to Knoll Gardens. Phil Clayton goes to town and looks at London gardens under glass. And we also focus on Euonymus and their beautiful autumn berries. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Chris Young. (laughs) 